the reality is, is Gen Zs and millennials for years have been demanding a certain way to consume products. Um, and the old traditional classic way from transactional ticketing is, is not the way. Um, they're, they're used to being able to allocate budget towards something and then gamify it to get the best deal. They're used to being able to commit to a subscription uh, and understanding what they what the value is they're going to get out of that. And when you talk about community, the community side of experiential um, uh, engagement is, is really that's what it's all about. So when you, you talk to a millennial, they'd much rather spend their money on an experience than they would on a hard good. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ravi. How are you? Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, really interesting to have you on because we, we went through multiple bookings uh, to figure this out, but uh, you're, you're running Festival Pass. And this is um, something I really, really have been following this, this trend towards how people are connecting online and, and, and staking together. So uh, jumping right into it, uh, could you give the quick bio of who you are and uh, what Festival Pass is? Sure. I, I think um, every story has context to it. Uh, you don't just start a company just because, you know, you had an idea in the middle of the night. Um, for me, it's been a 20-year journey to get to this point in terms of companies I've had in the past and why it all made sense for doing something disruptive in the live event space today. Um so I, I was an investment banker up until 1999, left that to start my first e-commerce company in uh, 99 uh, called City Stuff. I sold that company in 2001 uh, and then built a agency that was in the experiential marketing space. So when you think of live events, we at the time, we would bring a lot of big brands to really interesting cool live events, whether they're concerts or activations, film festivals, etc., during that time, we, we helped uh, launch multiple film festivals, uh, spent a lot of time up in Toronto at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, amongst uh, others. And we even owned one down in the Dominican Republic, uh, happened to be owned by a Toronto uh Toronto uh, resident uh, and Canadian, um, the resort down in the, in the DR. Um, but uh, fast forward a little bit, uh, that's where I fell in love with uh, live events overall. Uh, I then had a software as a service business, so I fully understood it, what subscription business meant. Uh, I sold that in 2014. And then for the last five or six years, I've had a, uh, a data uh, analytics company called Predict Analytics, still exists today. Um, but we had spent a lot of time in the entertainment space. Um, so the, so we worked with a lot of companies like A&E Networks and AMC Networks and up in your neck of the woods, Chorus Entertainment, we built out their underlying consumer data strategy. Um, so I've had a lot of experience in data and the uh, the entertainment market. And during that time, um, you may have heard, at least in the States, a company called MoviePass. Um, a lot of people have heard the the you know rise and fall or the the big triumph of uh, and failure of what MoviePass became but uh but I spent some time there through my company as their interim chief data officer so it gave me gave me access to really get my hands on three and a half million subscribers in a subscription company doing a half a billion a year in revenue uh, and really understand what it all meant and learned a lot of lessons of, of what to do what not to do when you're building a subscription type of business uh, and a lot of that that uh insight through all of those different companies led me to um, what we're doing today with Festival Pass, uh, where um, 
I believe and the market, I think, is ripe for a new, innovative, disruptive model in live events. It's a $200 billion business, has a lot of um, players that uh, while there are some big players, there's tens of thousands of others that are rights holders of live events uh, that make up the ecosystem. Uh, And in in so doing, it really plays itself into a marketplace-driven business model. I mean, that gives quite a few things to uh, decompress there. So let's talk about the experiential side first. You know, um, technically, this is experiential media. We're in the business of experiential media with uh, with podcasting. Right? What does uh, experiential services uh, mean to you? Yeah, so what it typically means in the marketing realm is when you're activating um, – brands in a live event setting. Um, so whether it's a sponsorship, whether it's, um, you know, a lot of brands will create, if you have a liquor company, it would, it's about getting the, the taste to the lips. So it's about doing things that actually let a user touch, feel, and be a part of your brand. Um, and it's usually considered in the live event space is what most people associate it with. And that's what we had. We had a, a business where we're, we were activating, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of live events every year. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the cool things about experiences and uh, and, create, and being in the business of creating experiences is that it makes you very differentiated. It's very hard to be a competitor to replicate what you're doing. Um, have you? Uh, how is the comp- competitive space in uh, experiential marketing and experiential uh, services? Yeah, well, if you're talking back into the time when I had the agency, mm-hmm. um, that th- there are a lot of companies that have pretty large experiential groups. Um, there, that what's cool about it, and just like a lot of the agency space, is there's a ton of uh, smaller agencies. And I was based in New York at the time, um, so New York being kind of the media capital of the world, um, where a lot of the ad dollars were being allocated. Usually, when somebody has a marketing budget. Um, they have paid media dollars, they have public relations dollars, they have traditional advertising dollars, and then usually, oftentimes, they'll have an experiential marketing budget. Uh, and in that in that way, um, a lot of there are a lot of smaller agencies. We were about a seventy person shop, um, but then there's also some of the big conglomerates. Um, so if you think of any of the big advertising holding companies, they all have an experiential marketing division. Um, but think about it. Think about how, like, when you have the Super Bowl, um, all of the brands activating at that big live event. Absolutely. Um, I mean, so with Festival Pass, um, this is a subscription-based, is it, is it a virtual uh, experiences? No, it's all live, all live events. events. Um, yeah, so, so people pay a monthly subscription fee. And they receive credits in return for their monthly subscription, and they can use those credits to redeem for thousands of live events across music, film, food and wine, sports, theater, all the above. That's really interesting because, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, people are very hungry for experiences. They just want to live, you know, and they're rushing to live again. How has that experience been uh, for you? Yeah, so we launched the company right before the pandemic. Um, So we spent the last year um, building the infrastructure, the data architecture, the technology, the relationships to be ready for the moment we're all about to 
to fall into. Um, you know, already where we are today, uh, we're, we're down in Austin, Texas, um, and we've seen a lot of things open up, especially in the music business. Things are opening up, and uh, even some of the large music touring companies have already have double the acts scheduled for 2022 than they did in 2019. Um, so if there ever is a reference to the roaring 20s, it's about to happen. We've been hearing that uh, about the Roaring Twenties coming back uh, into the Twenty Twenties. Um, what does that What does that mean for music and creatives? Um, you know, you know, like you know, there's certain certain areas that are completely open. Tor Ontario is just opening up again, so Toronto Torontonians are looking forward to getting uh, you know into more than just patios, but actually indoor dining and indoor spaces and recreational um, uh, experiences, right? Airbnbs uh, has an experiential component to uh, uh, their listings, and that's going through the roof, right? People are are looking for uh, for things to do. So, how does that how does that work with the music and performances? Because I can imagine during the pandemic, it's probably been a lot of things shut down. A lot of people who had to do a lot of different things. Um, you know, how, have they lasted through this? Are, are they just are just restarting their doors and restarting things, or have they pivoted into online and they're coming back to? Um, it's the physical world. Yeah. So, so first of all, um, you're, you're correct. Is the live event business effectively shut down for nine to 12 months? Um, but we've been seeing a ton of resurgence coming in. The pent up demand from the consumer side is, is massive. Um, but even on the artist side, right? So, so if you, if you really think about it, um, depending upon the level an artist is, they've spent the last 12 months, not touring. What, what, what do performers like to do? They like to perform. So, so now they're in this place where they spent a year indoors or wherever they were, um, writing music, uh, creating art, doing things they can, can, can do in there. And I, I know a lot of uh, musicians myself that, um, have been doing that. And right now they're just excited to go out and release a new album, get out and tour, tell people about it. Um, and that's, what's bringing the massive amount of events being planned for 2022 is because you have all these artists that have new, new content, new music, new, new things to share. And the way they do that is by getting out and performing. Yeah. I mean, with the rise of like the, the creatives as, as people are calling it, right? the people who create, um, you know, artists and, uh, the tools for them, um, tools like everything from gum road to NFTs, allowing for new types of financing and new types of uh, ways to activate, um, their tribes and activate their fan base existing, you know, uh, people are saying that we're going through almost like a, a renaissance when it comes to like culture, because a whole bunch of new people are just creating for the first time. People who are being creating are finding new ways to create and new ways to, uh, distribute their content and everything's in kind of a flux. Uh, would you say that, you know, there's like a resurgence of like newness uh, to the creative space or is it, uh, you know, everyone trying to go back the old of like... Yeah, I, I think anytime you have disruption, there's always uh, opportunity for um, change. And, you know, in, in our world, in our business specifically, um, you know, the way people have accessed tickets, if you want to call it that, entrance to live events has been very transactional for decades. Um, so there's a lot of large primary ticketing companies and they serve a purpose and they do a great job in managing the distribution of tickets. Um, but at the end of the day, from the consumer side, it hasn't really been that social. Um, so it's transactional versus social. So, you know, I'm sure you 
forget about which names there are, but most of the time somebody buys a ticket, they don't even really know or care where they got the ticket as long as they get into the event. The reality is, is we're creating a, a social frictionless way so they can actually have a bunch of experiences and community before they go to an event, while they acquire their ticket, um, and then continuously through to the event and then thereafter. So for us, it's a membership model that's all about building community, and it's about allowing people to really have a, a way to engage with the people that are their, uh, their tribe, um, both pre, during, and post a live event. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that word community because that's being thrown around a lot lately. You know, uh, it seems like the the 2010s were all about social, these large social platforms and trying to activate a large social base. Uh, but it seems like everyone is everyone is now trying to go after community and uh, activate building their own community, managing their own community, uh, using tools to house their own community. Um, right? Like, what does that? What does community mean in in terms of festival pass? And how are you performing in that? Yeah, so th- think about it. While our um, our demographic, our niche, based on the type of program. So, for example, millennials and Gen Zs <clears throat> like a certain type of music. They like to go out. They're very experiential. And of course, uh, you know, the Boomers or the Gen Xers um, might tend to be more in the sports category, the food and wine, or even music that you tend to have a different age group for old rock and roll versus others. Um, But the reality is, is Gen Zs and millennials for years have been demanding a certain way to consume products. Um, And the old traditional classic way from transactional ticketing is, is not the way. Um, they're, they're used to being able to allocate budget towards something and then gamify it to get the best deal. They're used to being able to commit to a subscription uh, and understanding what they what the value is they're going to get out of that. And when you talk about community, the community side of experiential um, uh, engagement is, is really that's what it's all about. So when you, you talk to a millennial, they'd much rather spend their money on an experience than they would on a hard good. Um, so we're really kind of um, taking all of that information and bringing it to the next level. We have um, even on our investor group and our board, we have um, you know the the leading expert globally in millennials and, and Gen Zs who has validated the path of where we're going on our model. Uh, and another one of our investors sits on the board of a millennial bank, um, which is helping us understand how millennials and Gen Zs allocate and spend money. So there's a lot of data, a lot of information going into the why behind what we're building. Um, so if, if that answers it, community really is a part of all of it. Yeah, it absolutely does. It helps. Um, you know, let's let's talk a little bit more about the, activating that base of uh, millennials and uh, Gen Z because these two cohorts are you know uh, are really interesting in terms of uh, in terms of like um, cohort analysis, right? Like millennials are now aging, and they are by po- by population and by age the least uh, hold the least wealth. In in, um, in 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 currently, I think like millennials, like eight people under the age of thirty five own less than 7% of U.S. wealth, which is insane. And then um, Gen Z is the largest uh, age cohort since the greatest generation in, in the 30s. Uh, I think about like one in three or about th- 30% of, um, of North America, the population it fits into the, the, the Gen, Z, uh, Gen Z cohort. And as they're aging, 
not only is uh, services adapting to how they utilize technology and, and perform because they're the uh, they're the, the biggest active uh, active base, they're also set to inherit like forty trillion dollars worth of wealth as boomers, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> die off. To be honest, and and uh, f- families inherit uh, properties and assets and things like that. So. So a lot of uh, big name brands are now like bypassing millennials and almost trying to look and how they can activate uh, Gen Z because it's a you know a larger lifespan, larger cohort, all those kind of things. What what do you th- what do you see as like the the differentiators between Gen Z and uh, a millennial market and even like Gen Y? I think those are the in between, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it in this way is uh, I, I kind of already talked about the millennial side is they've already proven to be the experiential driven uh, group who really want to go out and, and be a part of things live. That's, uh, you know, over 75, I think there's 75 million in the millennial set in the U.S. And of those 75 million, uh, I forget the exact number, but over two thirds of them uh, have spent money on live event experiences. So, so it really is kind of a driving factor to how they experience life. Um, on the Gen Z side, this really goes back in the financial side. Um, so what we learned is just uh, you know more how Gen Zs tend to budget their dollars. It's it's kind of a fascinating concept where um, the millennial set, uh, at least in some past studies, may not have traditionally been the the budgeting crew because they just want to go out and have fun and experience things. But uh, but on the Gen Z side, even more so, um, we found that uh, they just want to know how their life exists. So that if they have X amount of dollars in monthly income they have x for housing and they in the bank in the bank accounts themselves they actually allocate their dollars for certain things and this is some of the research i mentioned about some of the banking information we have is that uh you know they might say hey my my experiential life my going out uh is going to be a hundred dollars a month my food budget is going to be 200 my rent budget is going to be 500 uh and then whatever else uh, of life exists but they're very used to and and very uh structured uh as a group on how they experience that and do that but on top of it they're very value oriented so not only do they want to budget but they want to get the most out of that budget and and that's kind of what led us to to kind of play in the space we're in is that um you know by them committing to a monthly budget with us we can provide them access to everything they'd ever want to do within one focused environment and we can provide them more value because as a member um we're using uh, our marketing leverage in order to get better deals for everybody but at the same time continuously adding membership value to them as a member so no matter what if they put $100 towards Festival Pass on a monthly basis, they're going to cover their entire experiential budget and they're going to get a lot more value from it. So it really fits into the way they think. You know, I, I love the level of research you've done into uh, these kind of communities because usually people um, look at things from pain points and things that they, they wish they had and they just launch the product and try to figure out afterwards who to uh, activate for the product. Um, you, you mentioned like, you know, um, Festival Pass, you know, you've been, you've been thinking about this for a while and it's really a culmination of like years of, uh, of, um, a startup experience and, uh, yourself. Um, uh, what about it, uh, has, uh, you know, you know, captured your interest the most, uh, and drives you forward? Yeah, I mean, it really is those three three aspects of the things that I'm passionate about. So I'm passionate about live events. I have been for 20 years. Uh, I personally love them myself. Uh, I love going. I love, you know, and it's not, I'm not just one of those that say I just want a music festival. 
I love going to a sporting event. <clears throat> I love going to Broadway theater. I love going to music shows. I love going to a food and wine event. So I actually love the experiences myself. Um, so that's one. The other thing is data. Um, so I've been, I've been living and breathing data for almost a decade now. And what excites me is when I can understand how to build a better product and experience using data. Um, so a lot of what we're building uh, on the back end will continue to grow and be more and more powerful over time. You know, if you can think of in the traditional TV world or movie world, Netflix has a recommendation engine. So even though there's thousands of pieces of content, uh, you're only presented with 20 or 30. We can argue whether or not they're the right 20 or 30 that everybody gets, but you, Ravi, get a different set of information when you log on to Netflix than I do. And we have the same model. So basically when you log on a festival pass and we have tens of thousands of events that are available to redeem your credits for, I'll be looking at recommended events for me based upon my location, based upon what I did in the past, based upon the friends I have, based upon my demographic. Uh, and it will allow a lot of discovery for me. And if you, again, using the Netflix reference, I, I've watched a ton of movies that I never thought I even uh, knew I was going to watch uh, solely because they were presented to me at the time that happened. So I think of that same thing in live events. So when somebody has gone to see like here in Austin, the Black Pumas, or they, they like a certain type of band, and then all of a sudden somebody with a similar sound is playing at a smaller venue and it only costs six credits to go and it presents to me, I might be like, wow, that's great. I'll give it a shot. Six credits, no big deal. Let's go check it out. And that really creates a discovery engine, not only for the consumer but for all of the artists, um, you know, in, in the world of kind of democratizing accessibility, um, you know, usually we live in a world where the one who's got the biggest marketing dollars gets to promote something and gets to sell out. Whereas uh, if you can create this discovery for all levels of artists at all types of venues, um, you know, yes, I might be a consumer that goes to, you know, a 40,000 person arena and sees a big main mainstream band. But the next night I might go to a little small venue and get a really special experience because because somebody told me about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the way you kind of make it sound is like it's almost like an agent of discovery, right? Like I, I'm pre-committing to go out uh, X amount of times or, uh, you know, for X amount of uh, experiences this month. And uh, I get to choose. It's like, okay, I have these credits. Where am I going to spend them? It kind of forces you almost to also to participate in the world rather than being sheltered yep. at home. Um, what happens if you don't use those credits? Do they roll over? They do roll over. Yep. Yeah. So, so one of the things that through my experience over at MoviePass, I don't know if you know the business model at MoviePass, but uh, <clears throat> the the one thing I promised myself, I said I would never personally found and build a business that when I ask my consumer to do more of what I originally asked them to do, that I lose money. Um, so that that is a thematic that is impassioned through me. So I want the consumers to do more. I want them to have fun, but we've built a business model. So when they do, they get value and we make money. So, so it's a big, it's a win, win, win all around the, the venue or artist gets more people. We get a little bit of a margin and the consumer gets more value. Uh, did you say you were involved with MoviePass? Yeah, I was their interim chief data officer, okay. um, through, through my company. So they, they hired my company because of my past experience in data with large data sets in the entertainment side. And I, I was given the opportunity to go in there and understand it. And they had a great product market fit, but, but not the right business model. That's, that's very interesting. Cause yeah, uh, I remember MoviePass, uh, in its height, people were like, this is an amazing concept. 
but how come it just fell off really quickly? What do you think there that it was any, uh, any learning curves you took away from that? Tons. Yeah, I, I know exactly what not to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, the product market fit was great. Uh, consumers loved it, but they didn't build the model where uh, it was a win-win for everybody. So when it was a win for the consumer, it was a lose for the business. Um, and there wasn't a balance there. And there was there was a lot of ways that that business could have been fixed. Um, and, but there were some headwinds. The, the, the film industry, the studio industry is, um, you know, it's, it's a hard industry to kind of make changes in. Um, and also there, there's a lot to, it. We, we could have a whole podcast just on that, but, uh, but what I did, I took a lot of learnings out of it. Um, I understand a business model that works. This credit-based currency model is super helpful to make that successful, uh, as well as partnering with all of the inventory owners in order to have a win-win-win all around. It, you know, that's, it's really interesting because, you know, you talked about um, MoviePass being like a dual-sided marketplace and where one side was, it was weighted more towards one side. It's a benefit. And um, especially the, the businesses kind of suffered for it. Uh, you know, with FestivalPass, like with so many different categories of experiences and, and different uh, players, how do you how do you manage all that? Do is it self serve? Do comp- uh, do uh, people running experiences come in and uh, just launch uh, uh, um, with you, or do they partner with you? How, how is that process for people who are running experiences? Sure. I was going to say yes, yes, and yes. So um, there is a self-serve element to somebody that might have one or a dozen small events that they want to come and make them available to our members. Um, they can go to our partner section of the website and and, uh, and enter that event or, or at least reach out and have us onboard them. Um, but in order to get significant volume of events, we have lots of other partners. So we partners partner with venues, we partner with groups of venues, we partner with... Um, ticket owners, ticket rights holders, um, venue, big venue owners. Um, so it really comes from various places, primary ticket aggregators. So at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not looking to be another primary ticketing company. There's plenty of them out there. We want to help them, um, bring more people to their events by, by engaging in our membership base. So as we grow our membership and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it becomes, um, it's already a self-selection, as you even said in your your last comment, was these are people that have chosen to commit to going out. They've chosen to live, uh, we call it live life live. They've chosen to live life live and they're high frequency event goers. So once we have, you know, we keep growing our membership base, but, you know, we'll, we'll be in the millions eventually someday. And when we have millions of people in the U.S. that have self-selected to be the ones that go out, they're going to be the most active, most desirable group of people that event uh, event owners and venues want to reach. So by listing on our, on our environment, they're going to be able to... Um, quote unquote, fill their seats or have more attendance to their events uh, and and help people discover them. And one thing you'll find is a lot of people that produce lots of events, you know, of course, they're going to have a certain percentage that sell out and nobody can get tickets for. But then, you know, the good lion's share of the events they produce, you know, still have 20 percent, 30 percent of the tickets that never sell. Um, so we want to empower uh, kind of an overall portfolio model so that everybody wins. The venue wins, the ticket seller wins, the owner of the ticket wins, the artist wins, the consumer wins, and we win. So in, in, in building like a, a dual set of marketplace, um, there's a classic debate. Um, you know, in building it, do we focus on the supply first or the demand first and then uh, go to the other side? 
Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to you, question to you. Um, which did you focus on first, the demand and supply, and who is the demand and supply? Sure. So there's there, there's even more nuance to that. So uh, I don't know how much time we have. Um, but uh, when you think of a marketplace, and one of the reasons we even decided to build what we're building is there's really four core elements of a successful marketplace. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go through them quick, but uh, to give some analogies. So if you think of um, a local they call it a root density marketplace. Uh, think of Uber, Lyft, right? So uh, as long as there's enough car, enough drivers in Toronto uh, and enough people that want to get a ride in Toronto, you can have a marketplace solely within the root density of Toronto. Um, and then you have global marketplaces like an Airbnb, whereas if if people want to engage in a marketplace like that, they do so because of the large variety of inventory that happens globally. So I can go a way to a trip nearby. I can go to France. I can go to California. And as more inventory enters that marketplace, it becomes more and more sticky. That's one piece. The thing that's cool about Festival Pass is it's both. So when people sign up, they pay a subscription. And most of it, we expect the majority of the usage will be local. They're going to go to their local bands. They're going to go to local sporting event, the local community beer and brat festival. But Every couple months, they might venture out and go to Coachella or go to ACL or go to South by Southwest or, you know, go to a Giants-Dallas Cowboys game in a different state. Um, so when they do that, they're engaging in both a global density model and a root density model. Second thing is the type of inventory. And, and cut me off when I'm going too deep here. Um, but there's heterogeneous inventory and homogeneous inventory. So the Uber lifts of the world, that's homogeneous. You really don't care what car you're in as long as it's clean and safe and all that kind of stuff. Of course, they have different tiers and you can get a, an SUV versus another car, but that's, that's kind of irrelevant to the success of the marketplace. And then you have heterogeneous like Airbnb, which... Uh, is, you know, uh, it's that global density of adding new unique properties that then make it more and more exciting. So we're more of a heterogeneous model because uh, live events are unique, right? So the more unique live events we have, the, the better and better we provide a moat and excitement for our users. And then you get into the other two pieces. Uh, one is volume versus price to transaction. Uh, and luckily for us is we both have a generally high ticket price and high volume, meaning that because it's a live event, it's, you know, it's different than a Netflix at $9 a month or $12 a month. Um, because if you go to an event, you traditionally might pay $100 for a ticket or $50 for a ticket. So there's an idea that you can have both the more expensive tickets and then you can have the cheaper ones, which is that new band around the corner that might be 10 bucks or five bucks or whatever it is. So we're lucky to have the flexibility of both of those. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and and then the stickiness of the marketplace. Why, why go to your marketplace versus others? But you asked that overall question to understand supplier demand, and the answer is you need both. But because we're both root density and global density, we can strategically plan that. <clears throat> so how do we do that? Um, first of all, the beauty of living in today's world of consumer marketing, we can target where our users come from. So when we set out and started building membership. We picked the cities where we knew we can get the best events. <clears throat> so we have, uh, you know, root density building in central Texas, in New York, in Los Angeles, in Nashville, in Phoenix, in LA. Um, so as we build more members in a certain community, then we go out and use business development efforts or some of our 
API-driven data feeds in order to pull inventory from those specific um, communities. So we can build on a root density level. So each ecosystem, if we have 50,000 subscribers in Toronto and we have hundreds of events every month in Toronto, people, people are happy. Um, and then once we have 10, 20, 30 different markets that are self-sustaining in their own right, then everybody starts commingling and building into a global density. Does that answer the question? Uh, I think uh, you went above and beyond. Uh, <laughs> I love, uh, you know, I love the, the thought process behind this and uh, uh, the level of depth of uh, you answered it because uh, now that opens up a whole bunch of other questions. Um, you know, like you said, like with a company like Uber and um, those, those kind of marketplaces, um, you know, if you run a purely virtual uh, marketplace, uh, you can instantly scale because it doesn't matter um, you know, who's coming on and where, what time they're coming on because they, they, everything is available to whoever in a global place. But if someone, you know, from California signs up to Festival Pass and there's nothing going on around them, they're instantly turned off and most likely will never come again. It's, it's one of the problems with like the, the, the network effect of, uh, uh, of a marketplace. There's nothing to activate right away. You know, I think it was Facebook discovered like uh, average user, six seconds, if they don't find anything of value, they're gone. Right. Um, so how do you control for that? Do you uh, landlock or like geo lock certain areas? So like people only sign up if they live in a certain area. Uh, do you activate a location by location? Um, how do you scale that? Yeah. So so we think of it as a kind of a process. Right. So um, people come to our website and they can sign up as a free member before they start taking their credit card out and spending dollars. They can come explore. Right. So once they've signed up as a free member, they're part of our community but they don't have any credits to redeem for, for stuff, right? So they can explore and see what's going on. But once they do that, they're then kind of a part of our communication system. So they can receive notifications as great events come up in their neighborhood because we'll know their zip code. We know where they are. So um, if they happen to sign up from Boise, Idaho, and all of our events are in LA, New York, Chicago, you know, central Texas, then they'll just kind of live in that world as a free member for a while until they a decide to travel to a location where we have a lot of events or um, we start filling events in a certain market. And that, that's part of our own um, analytics, right? So if I see all of a sudden we have a thousand new members in Boise, Idaho, you're, you're damn right. We're going to start going out to everybody in Boise, Idaho and getting a lot of great events for them. Um, let, let's talk about the consumer behavior. Unlike Uber, like uh, someone might travel uh, to go to an event, right? Uh, catch a flight to go to a music concert. Um, how do you? Uh, uh, how does that play into effect? Like, uh, just because an uh, event is not near nearby, um, how does that uh, affect how you activate uh, the user base? Like, um, do you find that most of your people want to travel or want something more local, or is it a mix and blend? Different cohorts uh, want different things. Uh, you know, what's the data? Yeah, well, I'll let you know as, as uh, the world opens up and we have more data. Um, but um, within 30 days or so, all of our members will be able to access uh, over 600,000 hotel room nights at discounts much larger than they'd get anywhere else online um, because they're a member and it's not publicly available rates. 
Um, so that's a way we can cater to that environment, right? So somebody signs up as a member, they might pay $100 a month to be a part of Festival Pass or, or as low as $9 a month. Um, and they can use their credits to book hotel room nights wherever they go. Um, that alone should cover the cost of their membership um, based upon the, you know, if they, if they take one trip, they'll save hundreds of dollars. So so that, that enables something that's exciting. And then of course, as time goes on and some of the big events that you would likely travel to, you know, uh, we'll start building really cool packages and the ability for somebody to kind of book the room nights, the show, maybe a meet and greet, cool party, all that kind of stuff. No, uh, that's pretty cool. I, um, you know, I didn't realize that you were going like full, full service almost in like the, the experiential model. Um, so how much, how much is a membership and is there a tiered membership level model? There is. So uh, the lowest, uh, it's a free is, is the lowest, right? So it's free. Um, and people can, even if they're a free member, they can earn credits by inviting their friends. So, and anytime their friends join up, they get credits. So it creates this viral marketing aspect. So our, you know, our members become ambassadors and, and kind of a little army of marketers. Um, but outside of that, the, the lowest paid tier is $9. And currently the highest paid tier is $99. So at $9, you get six credits a month. At $99, you get 100 credits per month. So if you can quickly do the math, you'll realize that it's cheaper per credit the more you commit. And that's just a function of the business, right? So the, the more you're willing to commit to being you know, part of this ecosystem at a higher level, the, the less you'll be paying to attend these events. So the credit system um, does it work dollar for dollar? Like how how like how do you, how does it, how does the credits work? And um, you know, you mentioned like hotels and experiences. Well, if you're paying nine dollars a month, I can imagine it's only like a certain amount of uh, capital. You pay to pay for the rest of it uh, through through you. Um, you know, how does that work? Well, that's why I encourage people to to go for the higher tier so they get more credits. But uh, but even if uh, we haven't launched it yet, but in the next couple months, um, people will be able to buy credit packs um, in case like, so, hey, they want to book a hotel and they only have 50 credits, but the hotel costs 90 credits. Um, they could buy more credits on the spot. Um, and what, what's interesting is the credits will be directly correlated to the membership tier you're on. So we're not going to, people aren't going to be able to fully gamify it and be on the lower tier and then buy hundreds of credits um, because they'll be paying the price per credit of the lower tier. If they were a hundred dollar a month committed member, they, they can buy a credit pack for another hundred extra at the same price they were on their lower priced credit commit. I don't know if that answers the question, no, it but it's a, uh, and, uh, but it's a, Go ahead. You know, you know, the one thing you answered is it's dollar for dollar. So, so the beauty of data is that it enables us to really understand how to create value for the consumer. So um, as time goes on and we build more data sets, um, you know, those who are more valuable to the community will get more value. So, um, you know, you in Toronto may, uh, may see a slightly different credit price for a specific event than I might based upon a lot of factors, right? So, of course, the first factor is going to be what is the face value of that ticket. The second factor is our internal margin. How do I know what we pay for it as a company? So the ability to kind of correlate that because some of that we might get a 20% margin. Some of that we might get a 50% margin because we either pre-bought tickets to that event or we're putting more promotion behind it and therefore we're getting a better deal. So we're going to be working through a lot of that over time. Um, but also if you're a higher lifetime value to the community, meaning you're already been a, part, uh, a member for 12 months, 
uh, and you know you're already a profitable customer for our business, um, you may get a slight discount on the credits for a specific event because we want to encourage you to continue to be engaged. If you are posting more photos, if you uh, sign in and give us your, uh, not give us, but provide your Instagram connect, your Facebook connect into your account, and you happen to have 50,000 friends and have shared a few posts about an event you went to on your social, you might get lower credits as well. So the idea is how do we convince you to be a better partner in the community? And we can do that with um, incentives. And the, some of those incentives is a different, a different price to attend and or reward credits. Yeah, I was going to say with like um, your credit packs and, and and that kind of system, it almost reminds me of a lot of these um, these phone games like Clash of Clans that a lot of uh, young younger people, especially the the, uh, the Gen Z, uh, grew up on, right? And that kind of like primed them for user behavior. I know um, Zynga with uh, Farmville. Uh, built on top of Facebook, kind of prime millennials, uh, you know, uh, early on, and how to use to use credit cards and buy things online, right? Like games have almost uh, driven kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, buying um, uh, what's it buying patterns and and uh, and behavior, uh, you know, uh, as platforms kind of emerge. Do you feel that uh, you know, like that kind of model, like almost a gamified model, is like piggybacking on like the natural instincts that uh, uh, people are used to now? Because I think Gen Z is like super comfortable buying things on, on phones, whereas millennials still want to buy things off of laptops or, or on PC, right? How do you, uh, what do you think about like buying behavior and uh, when it comes to experiences, right? Like, yeah, I agree. I was going to say gamification is, is part of it, right? So, um, especially because both, especially Gen Z, but both millennials and Gen Z want value. <clears throat> so, how do they commit? And then with that commitment, find the best way to get the most value out of that same price. So they, they're a little more open to saying, well, why not? Why don't I tell 50,000 people on my Instagram account that I'm going to see, pick your favorite band, <laughs> uh, so-and-so at, uh, you know, at, at, you know, a specific arena. I'm trying to think of the Toronto ones that I've been to, uh, more, whether it's at the Maple Leafs arena or whatever it is. Um, but once they do so, uh, they get value for it. So they're like, why not? If I'm, if I'm paying my $49, $99 a month, I'm going to, a couple of small things I can do, I get a lot more value. And if we enable that to happen, it's great. We also have some other cool things we're working on from the artist side. Um, you know, I hate to use the word badges, but when you talk about gamification, there's such a thing as badges. Um, so we're going to allow users, not only after they purchase the tier, but um, to enable some kind of additional um, badge, if you will, for their favorite artist or their favorite sports team or their favorite whatever. And by doing so, they'll get extra benefit from it um, and we'll be able to create things that they traditionally couldn't get anywhere else. No, that's super interesting. Do you, um, you know, for the future, um, do you imagine ever if um, your system could help um, push, uh, you know, f festival holders or experience holders towards a certain sets of values, because uh, especially um, uh, the Gen Z market, market even millennials actually, uh, care a lot about social values when it comes to their, their buying experience and, and what they interact with. Um, things like 
you know, like Burning Man for years have done like leave zero waste behind. It's kind of their philosophy. And it uh, really speaks to a type of a type of personality. Um, do you feel like, you know, uh, by, by, you know, being like the, the pipeline platform that, you know, directs people towards different events, uh, you can hold play, uh, you know, uh, event holders more, um, I, I guess, uh, more accountable, accountable. Yeah, for their excellent environment, yeah. things like that. Yeah, and uh, the answer is yes, and uh, I think part of it isn't necessarily being the police of what to do, but it's more incentivizing. So it's it's more about um, you know sharing within our environment some of the some of the policies of certain events that may appeal to a certain user set. Um, it's also, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, from the social side, maybe not the event itself, but enabling our membership base as it grows to uh, engage as a community in some causes they care about. So, um, you know, we've thought about uh, enabling brands to participate in um, certain initiatives that we push forward within the system that then would get their brand in front of a, a group of people. Um, but by doing so, it's allowing our user base to vote on, you know, where some of those funds would go. Um, possibly it's here's an event. You know, you've seen some of these models before, but once you have a membership base, it's easy to act upon them. So if you want to go to an event and it costs 48 credits, do you want to donate two credits to St. Jude's Hospital? Um, whatever that is. So we'll, we'll get there uh, on that process. It's really about letting the consumers or our members, I like to say, instead of consumers, tell us what they want. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, speaking of futures models, um, one of the concerns about um, uh, behavior, right, is that it takes about six weeks to develop a habit. And then after it becomes like, a, it becomes ingrained into you. And after a year of staying home, there's tons of people who just don't want to go out, actually. Like even though the drive is there, they're just so comfortable because they've made themselves comfortable. You know, they've turned their house into like little, little golden palaces. Some people have built like spas and things in there, especially if you have the means. Um, you know, there's a certain cohort, of course, that wants to explosively go out and experience that. But there's also a large portion of the population that doesn't. Uh, do you ever think that there's going to be like a like a large market for like virtual events moving forward, other than just like from the pandemic? Uh, Fortnite, for instance, you know, made like made first ways of holding concerts in game and creating virtual experiences. Uh, do you find do you feel that virtual experiences are you know going to go by the wayside, or do you think people are, are are trained for that to want both right in person and virtual and have that have this kind of hybrid uh, experiences? Yeah, so. Um Definitely can answer that. So when we um, when we started and launched the company right before the pandemic happened, um, you know, you go back to March, April, June of twenty twenty. I'm trying to think of the year we're in. Twenty twenty, um, the whole world shifted. So anybody and everybody that had any kind of business related to entertainment immediately shifted to virtual, virtual, virtual. Um, so that had a, a bunch of positive and negative effects. So. For us, um, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years, so I've been kind of trained by not only the groups I'm part of, uh, but also the peer groups is you just can't always chase the shiny nickel. You, you always need to figure out uh, what the idea of pivot might 
be. But at the same time, if you're just chasing something, you're never going to sustain yourself for the future. So the answer is, is um, we chose on our side not to be the infrastructure through which live events happen, meaning that we, uh, sorry, virtual events happen. So meaning that we're not going to go out and try and build a new technology to be the producer of those streamed events. But the way we built our community and the way we built our marketplace, because we're a marketplace at the end of the day, is whether something's a live event or a virtual event, we will welcome that into our marketplace. Um, second thing that I think is going to change the concept of virtual is because so many people built technologies and, and implemented technologies very quickly in something that traditionally wouldn't have been available before. So now the cost of accessing the production in order to do so has gone down so much, you're going to see a lot more uh, availability. So for example... Um, you know, just in the U.S. alone, there's three, I think about 4,000 live independent music venues. So not the big stadium arena shows, which are going to put hundreds of thousands of dollars anyway into building video uh, and multiple camera angles in order to create a stream. So that's going to happen regardless. But those distribution outlets are likely going to be um, kind of much larger spaces for that, uh, whether they're turned into movies, whether they're turned into pay-per-view or whatever it is. But the 4,000 independent venues that have 300 shows every year all across America and Toronto and everywhere else, that's exciting. They didn't have cameras in for every show back in the day. But now for a tiny bit of money uh, and many companies that went in and, and sold them the fact that they'll give them the equipment for free, you now have 300 performances going through one venue in Austin or in LA or whatever it is. So what I find exciting is when you can almost make the live experience um, in itself, it could be virtual, but it's still a live experience. So for example, you know, things we look to hopefully do in the future is somebody comes onto our platform and of course all the live events are available there. So they can spend 30 credits and go to see their favorite band at a local venue in Austin, Texas or in New York City. But there's also 300 or more other virtual shows going on at the same time. So I might choose to hang out at home one night, get a few friends to come over, and I might go see one of my favorite bands. If I live in New York, down in Austin, I might see a couple sets, only cost five credits, 10 credits. Then I might pop over to the Viper Room in LA, see a couple sets, then see who's playing in Nashville, see a couple sets. And I might have an amazing evening watching live music in the venues that I love because I'm sitting here at home virtually. So to me, that's a new kind of evolution towards what <clears throat> virtual can be. It's not just the pre-produced uh, you know, made for TV show that, uh, that people are kind of sick of watching. Yeah, no, I love that. Cause, uh, there's actually running into, uh, what I was going to ask next is like these hybrid events, right. Meant for virtual and for in-person. Um, are you tracking any kind of like technologies or anything cool frameworks that people are using to like bridge the gap? So if you're in person at a, at a, at a, at a concert or a conference, you can interact with the virtual audience, um, or the virtual audience can at least, you know, feel like they're part of the crowd. Is there any kind of like uh, that kind of experiential setting for like, uh, like bridging that gap between the two kind of chords? I mean, there is, and I, I wouldn't know the names off the top of my head, but I do come across things often where a lot of people are trying to bridge that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I have not yet seen something uh, on a mass scale 
that makes it easy. Uh, and maybe I'm just a live event, um, authentic live event fan, meaning that when I'm there, I want to just, I want to enjoy it. Um, but, but there are uh, many companies and technologies that are trying to do that. So somebody could be virtual and feel like they're with their friends who are physically at the event and both can interact. Um, we'll see. I, I personally haven't experienced something that I love. Um, I see that easier to implement in conferences, uh, you know, when you can't get to Vegas for CES or something like that. Yeah, this is a really weird company uh, I met a few years ago and they were trying to try to do this way before the pandemic. But uh, they literally, their system was like, we're going to have like a, like a bunch of cameras all over this uh, venue. And then the floors are going to have like these light up spots. And the physical audience just kind of goes goes through, but for the virtual people, virtual they have avatars. They walk around, and as they walk around, the spaces light up, so it makes you feel like the virtual person is there next to you. And then for the virtual people, they have the camera, so they like they feel like they're part of the event, and they're walking around it as a, as an avatar, as a ghost almost, right? And they were trying to like create this hybrid kind of event, and this is way back before like the pandemic or before like virtual events were really taking off. So it just like. It, it, for me, for me, me, I'm like, this is kind of creepy because there's people who can see me, I can't see them, but you're trying to make it seem like I'm being, you know, they're, they're around me, like literally a feral ghost around me. But I, but looking back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was just going to say, I think, um, things like that are cool. They're fun PR driven events that sound like really cool to experience. But for me, everything has to be commercially driven, right? So am I going to spend an extra 20 bucks to have that experience uh, instead of watching my favorite band? I don't know. Um, I just haven't seen something at mass that will cover the expense of building the technology. No, fair enough. Absolutely. I think that's a lot of fringe things, but this is a, so I love this conversation because like, you know, we just kind of blew past this hour just talking about how uh, people are going to, uh, you know, be, be um, going back to experiences and, and, and transitioning, right? Um, how about yourself? Like, um, have you started going out yet? Uh, what kind of events have you been going to? All the above. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so even here in Austin, I went to a friend is a country singer even though i came from new york and i wasn't i was a country fan but uh, a friend and neighbor uh, is a singer he played at acl live last saturday night went to that it was a fantastic event amazing uh even went to an edm show uh, tiesto if you know tiesto uh, uh he played out by the airport to five thousand people great event it was awesome um i was in vegas for a conference last week and we uh you know even it was a concert about um the artist that died at 27. So uh, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain. It was it was an impersonation show, but it was fun. So it was the idea is like people are out, people are listening to live music, people are engaging. Um, here in Austin, you know, the big uh, football club opened Austin, Austin FC. It's it's been sold sold out ever since the day it opened. So the, it's the people here are going out, um, and uh, not only that in the southern states. There's a lot of outdoor space here. So uh, you know, here South Florida, other places where there's outdoor, uh, it's really really happening already. Um, but I look at 2022 as being like, uh, you know, where every, everywhere in North America is going to be, you know, just going out every opportunity they can. Perfect. Um, you know, I'll leave you this last question, you know, being a New Yorker that was in Austin and, you know, we hear a great, a lot of great things about Austin, but what do you feel like the differences between experiences are between Austin and New York, a big metropolitan city like New York has a lot of different things going on, but Austin, right. Is known as a cultural hub now. Yeah, I mean, 
Austin really is, is a lot about the music scene. So, you know, different than New York where there's plenty of great music and there's amazing music showcases. Um, anybody and everybody in Austin is here or at least before the last year came, but mostly because they love music. So anytime you're out getting a beer at a brewery, there's live music playing. If you are walking down the street on South Congress and you're getting a slice of pizza, there's music playing. Uh, in the airport, there's music playing. So it's just kind of wild that anywhere and everywhere you go in Austin, there's always live music. And it could be just a, an acoustic guitar behind you, or it could be, you know, full, full on, you know, 50,000 people. Um, so that, that to me has been such a differentiator and I, I've almost never met anybody in any industry that doesn't love live music here. You know, you can talk to a lawyer who has nothing to do with the music business and he loves live music. He's in a band. You go to the doctor and, you know, get a checkup and he's talking about the show he just saw last night. So it's just, it's just culture of live music is just fascinating. And then add in technology and add in all the venture capital money flying here. And, you know, it just, it's, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating growth city that for the good or the bad uh, is going to be significantly changed in, in the decade to come.